You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Turn to the book of John, chapter 5. The book of John, chapter 5. We will read this morning the first 18 verses of John 5. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. In these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. A man was there who had been ill for thirty-eight years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to get well? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up. Pick up your pallet and walk. Immediately the man became well, picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now it was the Sabbath on that day. So the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk? But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin any more, so that nothing worse happens to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. For this reason, the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But he answered them, My father is working until now, and I myself am working. For this reason, therefore, the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but also was calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Let's pray together before we begin. Our Father, we thank you for the blessing that it is to have your word in front of us in our own laps, in our language. We thank you that you have revealed yourself to us, and we desire now that you would make yourself known to our hearts and to our minds, that in the unfolding of your word there would be light and understanding, and that we would be forever changed by it. We pray that your grace would make this possible and that your spirit would be our teacher Bless this time, we pray, as we seek to understand some very difficult things. In Christ's name and for his sake, amen. Well, for today, I'm just going to draw your attention to one verse, or one phrase, actually, of one verse at the end of verse 9. Now, it was the Sabbath that day. The last couple of weeks, we spent sort of introducing John 5 and getting a handle on this miracle that occurs in the first nine verses. And uh, we came to the end of verse 9 last week, and that phrase, now it was the Sabbath that day, and I suggested to you that that was a key detail, and it really is, because that one phrase, in fact, that one detail is what bridges the gap, or is a bridge for us, I guess we should say, between the miracle in the first nine verses and the controversy in verses 10 through 18. And that phrase, that it was the Sabbath that day, is more than just an insignificant or minor detail that John sort of throws in as a time marker to help us know what day of the week it was. That phrase and that detail is actually what frames all of John chapter 5. 
It is that detail, the fact that it was the Sabbath, that makes the miracle significant. It is that detail which explains the controversy that ensues following the miracle. It's that detail which explains why it is that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. And it's that detail which really sets the stage for all of the claims at the end of chapter 5, everything that is in the red letters in your Bible, everything Jesus says about Himself and His divine relationship with the Father. So that detail, it was the Sabbath that day, is a very significant detail. And as you can already guess, we're not going to get any farther than just that one detail. It is pressingly important that you and I understand the whole Sabbath issue between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Because as you read through your Gospels, you're going to see that this issue of Jesus doing certain things on the Sabbath comes up over and over again. Not just in John 5, it's actually in John 9 when Jesus heals a man who was born blind. He did it on the Sabbath. Matthew chapter 12, the plucking of the heads of grain that we read for the Scripture reading, on the Sabbath. Healing the man with the withered hand, on the Sabbath. And this whole issue of the Sabbath is what explains the desire that the Jews had down in verse 18 to kill Him. Back in chapter 1, we read that He came into His own and His own received Him not. Then when we get into chapter 2 and 4, we get this sense that there is some tension and some hostility growing between Jesus and the Jews. But it is not until we get into chapter 5 that we find here the very first mention of their very open persecution of Jesus and their intention to kill Him. And what was at the heart of that? It was the Sabbath. This Sabbath controversy is something that haunts Jesus all the way through the New Testament. And we see it coming up in all the rest of the Gospels as well. So, what we want to do today is we want to get our heads around what was this Sabbath issue, why was it so contentious, and how is it that Jesus always found Himself cutting across the grain and making the Jews angry with Him because of His view of and His practice of the Sabbath. It's a significant and important issue. So, though we're not going to get past verse 9 today, I do hope that by the end of today you're going to have sort of an understanding of this issue, enough so that when you read through the rest of the Gospels and you see this Sabbath issue come up, you're going to to understand what's going on in the background behind it. It's a very significant issue and one that is actually going to plague Jesus all the way through until the cross. What begins at verse 18 haunts him for the rest of his life and ministry there in Jerusalem and in in uh, Israel until he is finally killed at Calvary. And what starts it all is this issue of the Sabbath. It's the Sabbath. Now, there's a lot that I could say about the Sabbath, and I don't think I'm going to answer all of everybody's questions this morning. I'm not intending to give you a full overview of the entire Sabbath picture and our relationship to the Sabbath or the Sabbath's relationship to us. And you're going to have questions about that probably. Why is it that we don't celebrate the Sabbath today? What has happened that makes us not celebrate the Sabbath? I could go into probably a whole series of messages about the fulfillment of the Old Testament covenants and the nature of the different covenants and the nature of the signs of the covenant. We don't want to get into any of that because it's really not pertinent to what we need to understand for John 5. Maybe someday, but not today and not next week. It would be sufficient to point out that if I thought we needed to celebrate the Sabbath, this would be yesterday and not today. Right? So we're going to touch on it just briefly, just briefly, but not, not fully. But I don't think I'll explain, uh, I don't think I'm going to answer all of your questions about our relationship to the Sabbath. The best place to start would be to flip back to some places in the Old Testament, and I don't have you do this very often, and that's by design, not by accident. 
I'm going to have you flip to a couple passages in the Old Testament. So keep your finger in John 5, but turn back to the book of Exodus, chapter 20. The book of Exodus, chapter 20. We're going to look at three passages from the book of Exodus. The best thing to do to understand the nature of the Old Testament Sabbath and Jesus' relationship to it is simply to look at the institution of the Sabbath and what God commanded concerning the Sabbath. Exodus chapter 20, this is in the context of the Ten Commandments. We'll read verses 8 through 11. This is the fourth commandment. All four of the first four commandments are what we call vertical commandments. They have primarily to do with our relationship Godward. Um, Have no other gods before Him. Make no graven images. Do not take His name in vain. And, by the way, that would include saying, gosh, that's taking God's name in vain, my, my book. Do not take his name in vain in the fourth commandment, which is honor the Sabbath. All of those are related to our relationship with the Lord this way, vertically. The last half, really not half, but the last six of the Ten Commandments, or the second table or tablet of the law, had to do with our relationships with one another. No adultery, no lying, no coveting, um, no stealing, and, and those commandments are horizontal relation, horizontal commandments. So the first four had to do with our relationship with God. Everything in the first four is oriented or designed to orient our hearts and minds and eyes upward. Okay, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. That means set apart. Treat it as different. Honor it. Sanctify it. Set it as holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle, or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. That's the fourth commandment. There's a few things that sort of stand out on the surface that you and I can observe. One, of course, is that the the intention of the commandment is to direct our hearts and minds Godward. That's why it's in the first half of the Ten Commandments. A second sort of observation that's just lying on the surface is you will notice that this commandment is tied back to the creation week. Just as God created for six days, one, two, three, four, five, six, and rested on the seventh, so you are to work, labor, for six days, one, two, three, four, five, six, and set aside the seventh day as holy unto the Lord. So the observance of the Sabbath was itself a reminder of the God of creation. Just as God created for six days and then rested on the seventh, so you are to work for six days and then rest on the seventh. And so the observation or the observance of the Sabbath would would naturally direct our hearts and our minds Godward. Because you work for those six days, and on the seventh day, all of the seventh day is designed to give you the chance to rest as God rested from His works of creation, and to reflect your heart and mind and spirit and soul Godward, and to honor Him. That was the intention. Now let me ask you this question. Did God rest from all of His activity on the seventh day? Did God rest from all of His activity on the seventh day? No, if He had, everything would have ceased to exist at the end of the sixth day because He upholds all things by the word of His power. So had God said, now I'm not going to do anything, then everything that He had created for six days would have just dissolved on the seventh day entirely. So He didn't cease from all of His labor on the seventh day. What did He cease from? He ceased from His labor that characterized the first six days, which was that of creation. Day one, he spoke. It was. He created. Day two, he spoke. It was. He created. Day three, he spoke. It was. He created. All the way. Day six, day six, he spoke. It was. 
he created. Day seven, he rested. Rested from what? That which characterized the first six days. A third thing I would point out is that this commandment in the Ten Commandments was given to the Jews. And more on that in just a second. Turn to the next passage, Exodus 23. Now, back in Exodus 20, it seems very simple, pure, straightforward, unburdensome, right? This is simple. You work six, you rest one. You work six, you rest one. Simple, pure, easy, straightforward. Exodus 23, beginning in verse 10. You shall sow your land for six years and gather in its yield. But on the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, so that the needy of your people may eat and whatever they... Sorry, so that the, I lost my place here. Oh yeah, so that the needy of your people may eat, and whatever they leave, the beast of the field may eat. You are to do the same with your vineyard and your olive grove. So that even the land was to have a Sabbath. Did you catch that? They were for six years to till the land and produce the harvest. On the seventh year, let it rest fallow and give their land a Sabbath from its productivity. Now, I wonder this. Of all of the staunch Seventh-day Adventists that you have met, how many of them leave their fruit trees and their land fallow on the seventh year? Any of them? They do get hung up on the Sabbath day, right? But how many of them let their land have a Sabbath rest? They don't do that. I had my great-grandmother was an a ardent Seventh-day Adventist, and I spent the summers on her farm and uh, spent a lot of time with her, actually, my great-grandmother, and all of her kids sort of observe or have that sort of Seventh-day Adventist bent and she would remind me from time to time how sinful it was for me to worship on Sunday. Didn't understand why I did that and would tell me all of, all the time, repeat the fourth commandment to you. You gotta honor the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath, keep the Sabbath. That was her thing. Not once growing up did I ever remember my grandmother having a seventh year in which she would not pick the fruit of her apple tree or a plum tree and not plant a, a, a land of, uh, a garden of potatoes. Not once did she ever let her land go fallow. That's beside the point. So, the Sabbath was also to have, your land was to have a Sabbath as well. You don't know of any Seventh-day Adventists that honor the land Sabbath, do you? No, my, my grandparents had a, a hay field every year they harvested the hay. There was never a fallow year where they didn't harvest hay. Every year they had a hay harvest. Okay, verse, uh, where were we at? Twelve. Six days you are to do your work, but on the seventh day you shall cease from labor, so that your ox and your donkey may rest. And the son of your female slave, as well as your stranger, may refresh themselves. Now concerning everything which I have said to you, be on your guard and do not mention the name of other gods, nor let them be heard from your mouth. So there, again, is the mention of the Sabbath. You Six days you work, on the seventh day you rest. Once again, pure, simple, easy. We understand the pattern. You work for six days, on the seventh day you rest. Now turn to Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31. Now, here's a couple more details concerning the Sabbath, beginning at verse 12. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying, You shall surely observe my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. Therefore, you are to observe the Sabbath, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. Now, that's a new detail, isn't it? Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For everyone, for whoever does any work on it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. 
So that, so the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath to celebrate the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. For in six billion years the Lord made the heavens and the earth. No, sorry, six days. I don't know how your old earth theology fits into the text, but in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. But on the seventh day he ceased from labor and was refreshed. Now we have a new detail, right? He who violates or profanes the Sabbath is to be put to death. I'm thankful that my grandmother did not enforce this part of the commandment. She might have killed me soon after I became a believer. Whoever violates or profanes the Sabbath is to be put to death. Why is that? Well, the text says that the Sabbath was a sign, a symbol of the covenant that existed between the sons of Israel and God. God had made a covenant between Israel and himself, and the sign which was to be observed of that covenant was the observance of the Sabbath. You observe the Sabbath as a perpetual reminder of this covenant. So back in Exodus 20, the Sabbath reminded us of the Creator, God as Creator. Now, it also reminds us of God as the covenant God. Because they had a covenant with this God, they were to observe the Sabbath. And whoever violated or profaned the Sabbath was to be put to death. Why such a harsh penalty for violating and profaning the Sabbath? Why such a harsh penalty? Because profaning the Sabbath said something not only of your view of the covenant, but also of your view of the covenant God. Imagine that I were to take off the ring, which is a sign and seal of the covenant that I have made with my wife, and I were to spit on it and put it on the ground and grind it into the dust and kick it down a sewer grate. What would that communicate to you about my view of our covenant and my view of my wife? What would I say to you? You would say you obviously have such disdain in your heart for your wife that it's inexcusable. You would say that to me, and you would be right. To profane the Sabbath, to treat it as a common day, to not observe it, to not care, to just go about your normal work-a-day activities that you did for six days on the seventh day was for, in that relationship and in that covenant, a profaning of the covenant and a disgrace toward the sign of the covenant. And it spoke volumes about the person's relationship with God, their view of the covenant, and their view of the covenant God. So God says they are to be put to death and cut off from their people. This sign is to be observed. And who is it to be observed with? Three times in the text it says the sons of Israel. You see it in verse 13. But as for you, speak to the sons of Israel, saying you shall observe my Sabbath. This is a sign between me and you. Who's the you? Who's the you in the passage? The you is the sons of Israel. Verse 16, so the sons of Israel shall observe the Sabbath. Verse 17, it is a sign between me and the sons of Israel forever. Couldn't be clearer. Who is the Sabbath for? Gentiles? The church? No, it's for the sons of Israel. Why don't I celebrate the Sabbath? Number one, I'm not a Jew. Number two, I'm not under that covenant. And anytime you fail to distinguish between the plans and purposes and design of God for Jews under the old covenant and the design and purpose and plans of God for the church under the new covenant, you're going to get into a theological mud hole you will not be able to get out of. It is when you fail to distinguish between those two peoples and those two plans and those two purposes of God that you get into this whole issue of should we observe the Sabbath and should we take the Sabbath principles and make them our own and how do we observe this and how do I put myself under the Old Testament law? You don't. It was for the sons of Israel. My grandmother used to ask me, why do you not celebrate the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath? I said, for the same reason I don't, that I'm able to wear mixed textiles and sow more than two types of seed in a field and I eat shellfish and cheeseburgers and all the other stuff. I'm not under any of that. I don't celebrate the Passover. I don't celebrate the Feast of Weeks. I'm not sacrificing lambs. Why is that? 
Because all of that was fulfilled in Christ, and I'm in Him, and He is my covenant partner, and His fulfillment of the covenant is enough for me. So I celebrate not the Sabbath, but the Lord's Day. That's our relationship to the Sabbath in short. Now, we could go to other passages in the Old Testament that describe the Sabbath, but they basically one of two things. Either a reiteration of what I've already showed you, or they would be sort of a description of the application. There were some passages that had to do with not starting a fire on the Sabbath for the purpose of work or for cooking. There are passages that have to do with not gathering wood on the fire, the implication being that it still has to do with a profaning of the Sabbath and treating it as not holy. So it's really simple. What were the children of Israel to do? Everything that I've showed you, you notice how simple it is? You work six days, you take a day off. You work six days, you take a day off. You work six days, you take a day off. Don't treat the seventh day like you treat the first six. Whatever it is that you do in the first six, don't do it on the seventh. Set it apart. Make it different. Make it different so that you would remember the God of creation and remember the God of the covenant. So simple. So pure. So unburdensome. Such a joy. You would just look forward to that seventh day, right? Well, that is the Sabbath description of the Old Testament texts. Now I want to tell you about how the Jews understood the Sabbath in Jesus' day. Now please keep in mind that nothing about what I am about to say to you has any connection whatsoever with this book. Everything I'm about to describe to you was what was added by the Jews in the Talmud and the Mishnah and the commentaries and all of the stuff that went with it. The purity, the, the, the glory of the Old Testament Sabbath had been so polluted so corrupted, so perverted and prostituted by the Jews that the celebration and observance of that day was almost unrecognizable. Gerald Borchert, in his commentary on the book of John, writes this, The Sabbath had become a pervading theme in Jewish life. So significant was the Sabbath that a major section of the Mishnah was devoted to Sabbath rules. Sabbath obedience became, in fact, an eschatological issue because it was thought that at least minimally the coming of the Messiah was linked to the perfect keeping of one Sabbath. So for the Jews of Jesus' day, there was an eschatological connection with the Sabbath. And by eschatological, it's a big word, simply means end-time things. So what we mean when we talk about eschatology. In other words, at least minimally in Jesus' day, they believed that if they could get all the Jews to perfectly keep one Sabbath, that that would do something to usher in or bring about the coming of the Messiah. So you can imagine the significance of violating the Sabbath. Do you really want to be the person that kept the Messiah from coming? Do you really want to be the person that that week or that month who violated the Sabbath and so the fact that the Messiah didn't come rested on you? So there's an eschatological connection. This was so significant to them. The Sabbath had become everything to them. It had, in fact, lost all of its purity and its sort of unburdensome qualities. Alfred Edersheim, in his book, The Life and Times of Jesus the Messiah, has an appendix at the end. It's Appendix 17. The title of the appendix is The Ordinances and Law of the Sabbath as Laid Down in the Mishnah and the Jerusalem Talmud. Now, Alfred Edersheim is just describing what life and the life and times of Jesus the Messiah were like. And he has a whole appendix that just describes what they had done with the Sabbath in the Jewish commentaries. Now, the Mishnah, <clears throat> the Mishnah was a set of sort of oral traditions in the, as part of the Talmud. The Talmud was the bigger collection of books. And Jews in Jesus' day would say, if you read the Old Testament, that's really good. But if you read the Mishnah, that's far better than reading the Old Testament because the Mishnah is all that the rabbis have handed down to us in all the oral traditions regarding how we obey the Old Testament. 
But if you read the Talmud, that's even better than the Mishnah. So the Talmud was far superior in the Jewish mind than the actual Scripture text itself. The Talmud contains the Mishnah and a whole bunch of commentaries and discussions between rabbis and descriptions, rules and regulations about what you could do on the Sabbath and what you could not do on the Sabbath. They regulated and they made laws and passed guidelines for every conceivable area of life. The Mishnah and the Jerusalem Talmud broke down 39 different categories of the types of work that can be done. So now this is what the Jews added to the Old Testament. 39 categories of work. Now you say, why 39? Why 39? Well, because the rabbis said there are 39 occurrences of the word labor in the Old Testament scriptural text, and so we need to have one type of labor for every mention of labor in the Old Testament text. It's numerology. It's a beautiful thing. It's just as productive today as it was back then, which means it's totally useless. You don't get off into numerology. So 39 references to labor, so they came up with 39 categories of work. Here are the 39 categories of work. Sowing, plowing, reaping, binding sheaves, threshing, winnowing, sifting, grinding, sifting in a sieve, kneading, baking, shearing the wool, washing it, beating it, dyeing it, spinning it, putting it on a weaver's beam, making two thrum threads, weaving two threads, separating two threads, making a knot, undoing a knot, sewing two stitches, tearing in order to sew two stitches, catching deer, killing, skinning, salting it, preparing its skin, scraping off its hair, cutting it up, writing two letters, scraping in order to write two letters, building, pulling down, extinguishing a fire, lighting a fire, beating with a hammer, and carrying from one possession into another. Each one of those 39 categories of work had its own set of subcategories of work underneath of it. And all of the regulation, the do's and the don'ts, and you can do this, but you can't do that, that were underneath each one of those subcategories of the 39 categories. And they regulated seemingly every area of life of what you could do and you could not do on the Sabbath. For instance, they had laws that pertained to lifting things on the Sabbath. Now, everybody agrees to pick something up is, and to set it back down is work. You don't want to work on the Sabbath. But the Jews were ingenious and they said, <clears throat> really the act of lifting is composed of two parts. Lifting and setting down. Everybody follow me so far? You lift something and you set it down. Well, once you have lifted something, you can conceivably set it down in one of two different kinds of locations. You can set it down in a public place or you can set it down in a private place. So the rabbis were generally agreed that the act of lifting was not in itself work, and the act of setting it down was not in itself work, unless you lifted and set it down in the same place that is a private place. But if you picked something up in a private place, that's only half the work. If you put it down in a public place, that's the other half of the work, and you really haven't worked, because you've only done two halves in two different places. So if you wanted to move something in your house conceivably, you could pick it up in a private place, but you couldn't put it down. So you have to put it down in a public place and then pick it up from the public place and then you can move it back into the private place and technically you had not done any work. Also the Jews would say it, if you pick something up with one hand, you could conceivably put it down with the other hand and each hand has only done half the work. But if you pick it up with one hand and put it down with the same hand, you have worked on the Sabbath. There was some debate among Jews 
if you picked something up with one hand and tossed it up in the air and caught it with the other, whether that constituted work. But everybody was agreed that if you picked something up with one hand, tossed it, and caught it, that that was working on the Sabbath. Everybody also agreed that if you picked up food and you threw it up in the air and caught it with your mouth, since the food would cease to exist, nobody actually did the catching. So that did not constitute work. Everybody with me so far? This only gets much, much better. Alfred Edersheim says, again, if it rained and the water which fell from the sky were carried, there's no sin in it. But if the rain had run down from a wall, it would involve sin. Presumably, I guess, because the wall would have been washed by that. So then you're contributing to the washing of the wall by carrying the water which ran down the wall. If a person were in one place and his hand filled with fruit stretched into another and the Sabbath overtook him in his attitude, he would have to drop the fruit since to withdraw his whole hand from one locality into another, he would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. So if you're driving in your car, which they didn't have back then, obviously, but you stretched out, or let's say you're standing inside your house and you reach a a piece of fruit out the door to a neighbor outside of your house, you could do that, but if you were to bring it back in on the Sabbath, that would be carrying a burden. So that would constitute work. And you couldn't do that. Alfred Edersheim writes, The school of Shammai, which was one of the schools of Jewish thinking of Jesus' day, also forbade to make any mixture, the ingredients of which would not be wholly dissolved and assimilated before the Sabbath. Nay, the Sabbath law was declared to apply even to lifeless objects. Thus, wool might not be dyed if the process was not completed before the Sabbath. Nor was it even lawful to sell anything to a heathen unless the object would reach its destination before the Sabbath, nor to give to a heathen workman anything to do which might involve him working on the Sabbath. Thus Rabbi Gamaliel was careful to send his linen to be washed three days before the Sabbath. But it was lawful to leave olives and grapes in the olive or wine press. Both schools, all the Jews, were agreed that in roasting or baking a crust must have been formed before the Sabbath, except in the case of the Passover lamb. The Jerusalem Talmud, however, modifies certain of these rules, Thus, the prohibition to work to a heathen only applies if they work in the house of a Jew, or at least in the same town with him. The school of Shammai, however, went so far as to forbid sending a letter by a heathen, not only on a Friday or on a Thursday, but even on a Wednesday, and it was unlawful to embark on a sea journey on any of those days. You couldn't go out by sea on a boat on Wednesday, Thursday, or Friday to reach a destination. Otherwise, you might still be traveling when the Sabbath would overtake you, and then you would be violating the Sabbath. Some rabbis forbid throwing water on oneself, warm water, because in throwing water on oneself, you would disperse the vapor, and in dispersing the vapor, that would be considered work. And if you threw water on yourself and some of it hit the floor, it might wash away the dirt, and then you would be contributing to washing the floor on the Sabbath. Regulations existed for concerning the lighting and extinguishing of lights. You could light a a lamp or a light before the Sabbath, but you couldn't extinguish it on the Sabbath. You were allowed to put a tray or a pan below a lamp in order to catch the sparks that would fall from it, but you couldn't put water in that tray because when the sparks fell down, they would be extinguished by the water and you would be contributing to putting out a light on the Sabbath, and that would be sin. It was lawful to lift a seat or a chair and move it on the Sabbath, provided it didn't have more than four steps or four levels, because once it had four steps or four levels or more, it was considered a ladder, and you couldn't move a ladder on the Sabbath. You couldn't drag a chair on the Sabbath because if you drug a chair on the Sabbath, it might create a, a divot or a groove in either the wood or in the dirt. And if you put a groove in the dirt, it's the same thing as plowing. You can't plow 
on the Sabbath because that would be work. So you could pick up the chair, provided there was no, provided there was no, um, no more than four steps. But then if you pick up the chair, you have to put it down with the other hand or toss it in the air and catch it with your mouth. How does that work? And see, when you raise dilemmas like that, then all of a sudden you've got to come up with all of these very creative rules and regulations to govern even your rules and regulations. You could roll a carriage on the ground because that would only compact the dirt and not stir it up, and so you wouldn't actually be doing anything to better the soil on the Sabbath. It was hotly debated among rabbis what could and could not be done with food on the Sabbath. Everybody agreed that you could wrap food in order to keep it warm, but you couldn't increase the temperature of food because to increase the temperature of food would be to further its cooking or to improve its quality. And in fact, this whole idea of improving something on the Sabbath was basically the guideline that sort of governed all of the rest of them. You couldn't, you couldn't produce any outward effect that was beneficial or positive. So you couldn't spit on the ground and scuff it in with your foot. Why is that? Because you would be leaving the ground in a better condition than you found it, namely watered and plowed and potentially receptive to a seed. So that was a violation of the Sabbath. You could wrap a wound on the Sabbath, but not if in wrapping and treating the wound you were actually going to improve the wound. You could wrap and treat a wound if the wrapping and the treating of the wound was only designed to make it keep it from getting worse, but not to improve it, because you couldn't heal on the Sabbath. If you improved something or healed something on the Sabbath, that is the same as work. So they didn't do any medical procedures, no setting of bones. If a bone was broken, they wouldn't set the bone. They wouldn't do anything which might improve somebody's condition on the Sabbath. A person might go about with wadding in his ear, but not with false teeth, nor with a gold plug in his tooth. Now, why the wadding in the ear? You put wadding in your ear. What does the wadding in your ear do? If you have an ear infection, they would dip it in oil or some sort of a medicine, and they would shove the wadding in the ear. You were allowed to go around with wadding in the ear on the Sabbath, but if it fell out, you couldn't put it back in. Why? because you would be doing something to heal or improve the condition of your ear. But if you got the wadding in prior to the Sabbath, you were allowed to keep it in for the Sabbath. Because you weren't actually doing anything on the Sabbath to make your ears better. Some indeed thought that this was the healing virtues lay in the oil in which it had been soaked and which had dried up, but others ascribed them to the warmth of the wadding itself. In either case, there was a danger of healing or of doing anything for the purpose of a cure And hence, wadding might not be put into the ear on the Sabbath, although if worn before, it might be continued. Again, as regarded false teeth, they might fall out, and the wearer might then lift and carry them, and this would be sinful on the Sabbath. So you're sitting there on the Sabbath, and you fall asleep on the Sabbath, and your false teeth fall out and hit the floor, and you realize that, and you reach down and pick them up. You've just carried something and done work of on the Sabbath, right? So then what do you do? Well, if you pick it up with one hand, I guess you could throw your false teeth up in the air, catch them in your mouth, and it wouldn't be considered work of putting it back in, would it? By the way, they had all kinds of machinations for getting around these laws. They would create the guidelines and the rules, and then they would find loopholes, and then they would create loopholes for the loopholes. For instance, <clears throat> it was unlawful for a Jew to travel a certain distance, more than 2,000 cubits, which equates to about three-fifths of a mile, if I'm doing my math right. About three-fifths of a mile on the Sabbath. That was what was considered a Sabbath day's journey. But a Jew would say, you couldn't, though you couldn't travel that far from your residence, there was a way of making sure that your residence sort of extended beyond the borders of your own walls. So if on the Friday before the Sabbath you went and took a piece of food, enough for two Sabbath days' journey, and you deposited them somewhere within that three-fifths of a mile radius, that 2,000 cubit radius, 
then you could travel out to there, and since you had food stored there, that would constitute your residence. And so since that's now your residence, you could go from the point of where you stored the food, the 2,000 cubits, on a Sabbath day's journey. And then you could come back. And there was ways of, in order for me to travel from my residence to your residence, there was very ingenious ways of making our residences somehow the same residence. For instance, if you lived where I live at sort of the end of a cul-de-sac, all my neighbors are kind of within a stone's throw around there, basically. Well, if all of us were Jews and living in Jesus' day, we all on the Friday prior to the Sabbath took a little piece of food and put it out in the courtyard, sort of a central location, I would, that by doing that act, be extending my residence out there. Well, by me doing that and extending my residence out to the common courtyard, if my neighbor does the same and extends their residence out to that common courtyard, then really our residences are attacked, attached. So I'm not sinning by going from my residence then into their residence, but if I plan on visiting them on the Sabbath, I need to make sure that I deposit that food so that our residences are connected. And then I can go from my residence into their residence, and I can carry anything from my residence into their residence without violating the Sabbath. See how ingenious that was? Or they would run a wire or a string or a rope out the door of their house and down the alley or the street as far as they wanted to be able to go. And by doing that from their house out wherever they wanted, they would be able to extend the boundary of their residence out to that point. And so then they could do anything they wanted on the Sabbath within the boundaries of that. Isn't this brilliant? You catching all this, by the way? You looking forward to the celebration of next next Saturday in doing all of this? You looking forward to this? Is this a joy for you? Not at all. Now, just in case you um, are thinking, well, how, is it possible to violate the Sabbath in how I dress? Oh, yes, yeah. They had all kinds of rules and regulations for that. A woman couldn't wear ornaments in her hair or anything in her hat which might fall off or which could be easily taken off because she might be tempted and forget it was the Sabbath, take off her hat to show a companion or take off an ornament or an ornament might fall. And if, it's like the false teeth. If the ornament falls and you pick it up, then you have to carry it back home, which would be carrying a burden on the Sabbath. Rabbis forbid women to look on the mirror on the Sabbath in case they saw a gray hair and they would pluck it out and that would be work. You see how I just set that right up on a tee like that and I'm going to walk away from it. They had regulations about what you could and could not rescue from a fire on the Sabbath. If your house started on fire on the Sabbath, you were allowed to take out of your house only what was absolutely necessary for the celebration of the Sabbath itself, which means only enough food to celebrate the remainder of that Sabbath day. If, on the other hand, all of your food was in a basket or a cupboard, you could take the whole basket or the cupboard out because that would be one trip. You were only allowed to save or salvage from the fire before your house burned down only the utensils that were necessary for preparing food on the Sabbath and only the clothing that was absolutely essential. But there was a provision that if your house was on fire, you could rush out of your house, take off your clothes, go back in and put more on, and save one pair of clothes at a time by going in and out of your burning house. A seed could not be dropped or thrown, or a seed could be dropped or thrown, but two seeds would constitute sowing. Anything that improved the ground was work. To break a clot of dirt even by stepping on one was considered work. To sweep the ground to the floor, to water a tree, to pluck a withered leaf, to do anything else which might serve to ripen a fruit was forbidden. To pick up a fallen fruit on the ground below a fruit tree was to lift and bear a burden. It was also considered reaping or harvesting. You couldn't go fishing on the Sabbath because if you ended life or you went fishing and the fish died, that would be considered harvesting or reaping of food. To cut a mushroom on the Sabbath was a double sin because not only have you harvested on the Sabbath, but you've actually pruned a plant and another stem will grow in its place, and that is almost like the act of sowing. So to 
to cut a mushroom is two sins. A radish may be dipped into salt but not left in it too long because this would be to make a pickle. And if you have changed or improved the quality or quantity of a radish, making a pickle, that's work. You were allowed to borrow from your neighbor on the Sabbath, but you couldn't call it borrowing because if you called it borrowing and lending, then it kind of creates somewhat of a legal agreement and your neighbor might be tempted to write down something about the legal agreement. And there's, there were regulations and laws about how much ink you could use on the Sabbath and what you could write and how big the letters could be and how many letters you were allowed to write. So it was better just to not even work, use the term borrowing and lending when using something on the Sabbath. Alfred Edersheim writes this, Thus one of the most curious provisions, and this one I love and I've saved the best for last, one of the most curious provisions of the Sabbath law was that on the Sabbath only such things were to be touched or eaten as had been expressly prepared on a weekday with a view to the Sabbath. So you couldn't eat anything that you had not designated the day prior I'm going to eat this on the Sabbath. Thus, if a hen had laid on the Sabbath, the egg was forbidden, because evidently it could not have been destined on a weekday for eating, since it was not yet laid and did not exist. While if the hen had been kept, not for laying, but for fattening, you're going to eat it, the egg might be eaten as forming a part of the hen that had fallen off. Now, we have just dipped the finger in the ocean of regulation that surrounded the Sabbath. Now, one thing is true of everything I have just described to you. Not a bit of it, not a bit of it was in the Old Testament. None of it. What was the point of the Sabbath? What you do for six days do. On the seventh, treat it as different. No regulations about what you could eat, what you couldn't eat, and where you could go, how far you could travel, what you could lift, what you couldn't lift. And suddenly when you understand this, now with all of that background, you can kind of understand as you read through the New Testament that every time Jesus did anything on the Sabbath, the Jews were after him. The healing of the man's withered hand in Matthew chapter 12. The healing of the blind man in John chapter 9. The healing of the man, the paralytic at the pool of Bethesda. Was it... Was it illegal or unlawful or a breaking of the Sabbath to heal somebody on the Sabbath? Was that unlawful? You read the passages in Exodus. Was there anything that said it was unlawful to heal anybody on the Sabbath? Was that unlawful? Did Jesus violate the Sabbath? No. Did he violate their man-made traditions? All day long he did that. Every time he did anything he did it. He didn't care one whit for any of their man-made traditions. None of these laws did he even seek to follow. Now you can understand what he was saying when he said you make null the commandments of God by your vain traditions. Everything you heap on these people. You, you, you search land and sea to find a proselyte. And once you've found him, you heap on him all of these burdens that neither you nor your fathers could bear. And you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourself. He was righteously indignant. Now why did I go through all of this detail about their abuse of the Sabbath? Well, for one, it was kind of fun. But second, what I wanted you to do was to feel that palpable burden that they were under. Can you feel that? You can feel nobody would look forward to the Sabbath. It did anything that I described to you here draw your heart or your affections Godward to the God of creation and the God of the covenant? Did any of those regulations serve to push your heart and soul in worship and adoration to God? No, because everything that had been given for the Sabbath observance which had to do with their relationship with the Lord, became nothing but a bunch of rules and regulations and horizontal, do this and don't do that, and oh, I violated the Sabbath again. There was no way anybody could faithfully keep the Sabbath under those conditions. 
Was it unlawful for the man to carry his pallet on the Sabbath? See, now we're back to John chapter 5. And this is the issue. The healing is significant. But what's even significant in John 5 is that even with the healing, nobody nobody seems to mention or see the healing. None of the key players in the passage see the healing. What do the Pharisees see? They see a man carrying his pallet on the Sabbath. That's why they say to him in John chapter 5, verse 10, the Jews were saying to the man who was cured, it's the Sabbath and it's not permissible for you to carry your pallet. Is that a true or false statement? It's a false statement. Of course it was permissible for him to carry his pallet. Was he a pallet carrier six days of the week? Was that what he did for work? Of course it wasn't what he did for work. He was paralyzed. He didn't carry around pallets for a living. He didn't carry around beds for a living. Is there anything about what this man did in carrying his pallet, which profaned the Sabbath, and treated that day as the same as all the rest of the six? Of course not. And Jesus commanded him to carry his pallet. But did Jesus command him to sin? In carrying his pallet, was he violating the Sabbath? Not a bit. In carrying his pallet, was he violating the man-made traditions? He was. That's what galled them. Now you understand John chapter 5. You understand John chapter 9. Jesus heals the blind man. He did it on the Sabbath. You can't heal on the Sabbath. Why? That's work. You understand verse 17 now. My father is working, and I am working. He's not denying that it was work to do this on the Sabbath. He's simply saying, I have the authority to do it, and what I have done is not unlawful. Now you understand Matthew chapter 12, picking the heads of grain out in the field, and they say, you're violating the Sabbath. Were they violating the Sabbath? No, they weren't violating the Sabbath law at all. What were they doing? Picking the grain, which is harvesting, grinding the heads of grain, which is threshing, blowing off the chaff, which is winnowing, and eating something that wasn't designated on the Sabbath. That's four Sabbath violations just in that one act. Were they violating the Sabbath, the disciples? No, Jesus said they were guiltless. What they were doing was walking all over the Jewish regulations and rules regarding the Sabbath. Now, hopefully with some of that background, you can kind of understand at least a little bit about what was going on here. When you read in the New Testament, Jesus did this, and it was unlawful to do this on the Sabbath. What's being described is not unlawful according to Old Testament law, the giving of the Sabbath, but unlawful according to their vain man-made rules and regulations that they imposed upon the Sabbath law, which was a burden to everybody. Now, here's the two warnings for you and I from the passage. Let me give them to you quickly. It is very easy for us to do the same thing that the Pharisees do in, in two different things. Number one, by taking the blessings of God and turning them into burdens. We do this often. We take things which ought to be a blessing to us and we make them burdens. And how is it that we make them a burden? We make them a burden by our own sin our own self-righteousness, and our own pride. We take things that God has given to us, whether it's our job or our kids or our spouse, our marriage, our family, our home, the place that we live, or anything else in which we're involved, our church, the Word of God, we turn it into a burden with our own sin and our own selfishness in making these things outward marks of our own righteousness. And in making them all about us, when we ever take a blessing that God has given to us, which should direct our hearts to Him, and we make it all about us and myopically, inwardly focused on just me, just me, and it all becomes about serving me, then the very thing which is intended to be a blessing becomes a burden to us. That's not the way it should be. That's what the Sabbath had been and become, from a blessing to a burden. We have an almost unlimited ability to take the blessings of God and turn them into burdens by our own sin. The second thing that you and I can fall into the habit of doing is to somehow think that in following and obeying all of the man-made requirements that we are thus fulfilling the will of God and doing His will. And that's not necessarily true. 
You see, we can cover up a wicked and sinful and distant heart from God by just being involved in all of the things, the day-to-day things that go on in our lives. All of the acts of outward obedience and looking good before men. That's what it was all about, looking good before men. Doing these things that make us feel good about ourselves. Meanwhile, the heart is very distant from God. That's what the Jews have done with the Sabbath. They covered up their lack of spiritual life. They covered up their pride, their sin, and their self-righteousness with all of the rules and regulations that they followed. And in doing that, they thought they were being obedient to God. And that's why Jesus said, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. You weed out a gnat and you swallow a camel. You're able to go through the minutia of Sabbath observance and do your deeds to be seen before men and think that you're righteous by that, when in reality your heart is very distant and far from God. That's the danger we face. Now all of this just serves to really set the scene and help us to understand why this controversy erupts in verses 10 to 18. And we'll take a look at that and look at that next week. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you have drawn us to yourself in Christ and you have given us such clear and ample warnings. We pray, O God, that those things which are blessings to us may not in any wise become a burden to us through our own sin and self-righteousness. We humble ourselves, O God, and we pray that you'd search our hearts and try our minds and see if there be any wicked way in us and then lead us to that rock which is higher than we are. Lead us to yourself and purge us from every sinful and wicked way. May you be pleased and glorified not with the outward acts of righteousness that we do, but with a heart that is directed to you, the God of our covenant, our covenant partner, and the God of creation. We thank you for who you are and what you have done for us, O Lord God, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.